Hello and welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. My name is Charlie. I'm your host and I'm here with my number one co-host, James. Honored to be here, Charlie, as your number one co-host for mm-hmm. today. I ranked them all up and you you came up at the top of the list. It's nice when the competition is uh, non-existent. Well, you know, it was a close tie between you and Ood Gallifrey. I mean, Ood's great. Yeah, he co-hosted an episode, so... You're not wrong. Uh, I'm glad Dan Carlin hasn't snuck in here. Oh, yeah. Actually, Dan Carlin is my favorite host, even even including you. Sorry, James. I uh, I was listening to this other podcast that was pretty interesting. This guy went on this long walk, a long meditative walk through Japan, and he was like, I'm going to block technology through all of this, except when he went through this historic battlefield, and he was like, I am going to listen to this one hardcore history episode because I have to as I walk through this. I don't blame him. No, I mean... Like, how could you give that up? That's, like, the only reason to give up giving up technology. <laughs> yeah. We, if you're not familiar with paper boys, Charlie and I, are PhD students who read a lot of papers for our own research. So paper boys is our way of giving back to the community in a way and cutting through headline science news, misinformation. You know, usually you see these headlines and it's like, these headlines about new research doesn't quite give the full story. So Charlie and I are here to actually read the research papers and let you know what's happening behind the scenes. That we are. And today we have an exciting episode about supernovas. Supernovas. I love these episodes. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like whenever we do cosmology stuff, I'm always, I always go down too many rabbit holes of research. These episodes take me the longest to prepare. Yeah. Because I'm like so fascinated. I feel like every time we do them too, it's like, it's that same feeling as when you start to look at the stars and you're like, oh my God, like there's something much bigger totally than this apartment where we're recording Paper Boys. <laughs> I actually had like an existential moment today while prepping this episode. Really? Yeah. All right. Of like, wow, we don't matter. Yeah. Just a blink. I saw actually it was because I looked at a picture on the Wikipedia article for Supernova. Mm-hmm. There's a picture of a galaxy with a supernova happening in it. And this picture of the galaxy is like so stunning. It's hard to believe that it's a real picture. Yeah. And I looked at that and I was like, oh, we are completely unimportant. And then you're like, oh, this is like 10 billion whatever away. That Yeah, like that is one galaxy among... Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I Yeah. I won't bore you anymore. <laughs> no, I saw a poster of like the Milky Way yesterday that like, you know, has the zoom in of like our solar system. And they're like, you know, there are 400 million stars in the Milky Way. 400 billion. Yeah. And then they're like, there are f- over 100 billion galaxies. And you're like, all right, just stop. You want to know what will make you feel small? Is And this is another thing I've been doing lately, is playing this game called Elite Dangerous. I haven't heard of this. I'm Okay, it's insane. It's a full-scale simulation of the Milky Way. What? And you and you live in like, you have like a spaceship and like you, you... Oh, you. I think you showed me this maybe briefly, but like... I think I showed it to you when I first started playing it and then I was off of it for a long time and I just started playing it again. It is insane. Like you literally, you can visit every star in the galaxy. Like you can, I mean, you can go to the solar system, but like that's not exciting. Whoa. It's, it, it is, there are literally 400 billion places you can visit in this game. That's nuts. It's really nuts. Holy cow. Anyway. Today, well, we're talking about Antarctica and supernovas. I'm in. I can't wait to hear about the story. You're listening to Paper Boys.
as always, before we get started into the episode, we want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us again for another edition of Paper Boys. Charlie and I love making this podcast, so we hope you'll join us in our excitement on social media, either on Instagram or Twitter at PaperboysPod is our handle, or by email or any other means necessary that you find to contact us. PaperboysPod at gmail.com is probably one of the easiest, but... Today, today's episode actually came in on an email. That's right. Like it was a recommendation. Yeah. Just so you all know, we will do episodes that are recommended through our email or through Twitter or whatever. Yeah, we've almost done, like almost 10 of our episodes at least have been yeah. recommendations so yeah. far. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash paperboyspod. It is a great way to support the show if you're a fan and... It's also a great way to get more out of the show. We have bonus episodes every month. We actually have one that just came out on uh, the discovery of the shape of DNA, like Watson and Crick, famous paper. Really fun episode. Yeah. Fascinating. You know, this is that was like a momentous discovery. And it was so cool to r- really see and actually like read the science and sort of be absorbed in the context of it because it was so much more complicated than I thought. Yeah, and the story of how it was discovered is really interesting and also sort of controversial. Yeah, as much like the human side as just the scientific side. Yeah, plus James and I have a few drinks. We get a little silly with it. It's a good time. Yeah, it's a good time. So check that out, patreon.com slash paperboyspod. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who already is a patron. We love you all. We love you all. Okay, so you mentioned this paper came in as a recommendation. Yes, this is uh, came in through our email from Ben Gilchrist who's a listener down in Australia. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, thank you very much, Ben. When I saw this, I was like, all right, I know I have to do this. Like, it's two things that I love. One is space, and two is Antarctica, because my favorite animal is penguins. And three is Paperboy's podcast recommendations. That's true. That's the that's in order. The trifecta. Yeah, Paperboy's <laughs> penguins. <false> third. <laughs> I mean, penguins. Yeah. Uh, cool. Give us, give us, like, you know, the two-sentence elevator pitch for this, like, you know, Walk into the elevator. There's a paper boy. They want to know what the newest episode's about. Oh, like they need to go give the little extra, 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 extra. Yeah. So, like the headline of the headline. Yeah. So, what these researchers did is they actually scooped up 500 kilograms of Antarctic snow. That's a lot of that's a lot of kilograms, folks. Mm-hmm. And then they basically they processed it to find specific isotopes that are the product of stellar explosions whoa like so when a star explodes it rains down atoms onto the earth eventually you know and and other things too but the earth is like is in the way it's way more exciting than finding just like a patch of yellow snow (laughs) yes this is a a patch of starry snow starry snow and so uh they process it they found these isotopes that indicated supernova and uh and it's it's pretty interesting and different for a few reasons which we'll get into okay I cannot wait. So Ben, <laughs> luckily you don't have to. And literally I don't have right to. Right now. <laughs> yes. This is perfect. Okay, so Ben sent this in. What were some of the headlines that you found about this article? Yeah, the article that Ben sent in the first place was from Science Alert, and the headline is for the first time a rare type of space dust has been found in Antarctic snow. Ooh. And then so and then I wanted to do a little more research into this so i found the new york times article called a supernova was hiding in antarctica's snow ah, and just then, hiding hiding right under their noses yeah it's ready to pounce hiding underneath all those penguins yeah 
And then uh, one more from the Toronto Sun. Supernova remnants in Antarctic could be 20 million years old. 20 million? 20 million, yeah. Wow. I feel like you should have your pinky to your mouth when you say that. <laughs> you said that very Dr. Evil. 20 million? Cool. So what was your first impression from the news headlines? So, I mean, like, honestly, the coverage was pretty good after having read the paper. So my first impression, I guess, wasn't far off from how it turned out. But I was a little bit kind of, I guess what I was wondering going into this is like, well, what makes this so interesting? Like, how is this a new discovery? Like, how come people haven't found this yet? Or why is this news now and not 20 years ago? Or Yeah, I guess more like maybe this is because I know a little bit about this stuff. And so why don't we just dive into some of the background? Like, how is it that we are discovering stuff from a supernova here on Earth? Yeah, I mean, and also, so we did an episode about supernovas, supernovae? I'm just going with the supernovas because I hate saying supernovae. I know. It's like when antennas, antennae. I know, yeah. Like the correct word for, this is just set the record straight. The correct word for antenna, plural, is antennas. Yeah, because antennae is for bugs. For bugs, which I was happy to learn. Mm-hmm. Okay, supernovas. So we did an episode about this a couple months ago, and it was like, they. it seemed like they had measured this on Earth previously. Yeah, and so right. so basically, I guess for anyone who doesn't know, a supernova is the result of a star dying, basically. So when a star dies, depending on its size, it could do a couple things. One thing is that it will... I mean, what all stars do is that they, like, explode. Could And why does a star die? I think it's just because it, like, runs out of fuel, basically. Okay. Like, once it's been going... Because a star is constantly undergoing fusion, so hydrogen atoms are smashing into hydrogen atoms, producing helium you know, helium can smash helium and produce, you know. So, like, you've heard, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson say that, like, we are made of the stuff of stars, you know, and it's mm -hmm. very poetic. But it's true. Every element that exists was produced in a star. I mean, unless it's something you made in the lab. But, like, the Big Bang happened and created just a universe full of hydrogen. Like, that's all there was. Whoa. So that's why, like, hydrogen's so abundant. And then... If you want to get anything above that, you basically need to start to just smash a bunch of hydrogen together and get these other elements. Exactly. So the universe is That's actually, so cool. it's 75% hydrogen and 24% helium and then 1% everything else. What? Yeah. I mean, it's probably like less than 1%. Man, the universe is so simple. It's so basic. What the I heck? mean, then, you know, it... That's all of that. And then, you know, that really only makes up like 20% with the other 80% being dark matter and dark energy and like, <laughs> all right, so all let's right, not get into right. that. But so uh, you have all this hydrogen in stars and then it produces these heavier atoms. And anyway, once it depletes all of that and it can't really do much more, it collapses and it will explode. And then that explosion can actually result in, depending on, again, the mass and the size, it can, it can result in a neutron star or a black hole. Ooh. Um, or it can just obliterate the star and like nothing's left but like when you see a nebula like a picture of a nebula from like hubble mm -hmm. that is the remnant of a supernova explosion and the colors and stuff that you see are like all the elements of the star just like exploded out and spread out through space like these clouds of matter. yeah i guess so i'm not sure what gives them like color and they also the images could be false color for all i know oh false color but like they represent, you know, the former matter of a star yeah, yeah, spread yeah. out just and, like gas you know, and plasma giving off whatever radiation or light or right. Okay. So all that matter that gets flung out then eventually will run into things or okay. things will run into it. And so what happens is there's 
what astronomers call the interstellar medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they call it the local interstellar medium. And it's basically like a bunch of these clouds that they think are the very old remnants of supernovas. And uh, the solar system actually lives in a cloud like this. So we are actually like flying through a cloud of space dust. Whoa. So that means that pretty frequently we are getting bombarded by all these elements that were produced by the supernova explosion. Okay. Interesting. So one of those elements is, I, I think like actually like the heaviest element that can be produced by this is iron. And I think you need like different types of stellar phenomena to produce heavier things. Okay. So iron is a good signature then of a supernova. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So actually, so why don't I tell you what this paper is called? It's called Interstellar Iron 60 in Antarctica. Okay. So Iron 60 is like an, it's an isotope of iron, meaning it's like this unstable, it's radioactive and, uh, and it will decay, but it's half-life is like 2.6 million years. So by looking at Iron 60, they can actually use like its decay as a good way to like age things happening in the universe. Whoa, that's so cool. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's like you find a pile of iron 60, which like you're not going to find a pile of, but hypothetically. Well, they kind of did find a pile of it in this paper. Okay. Not like like a pile of a rock, but... High quantities of it. Right. Cool. And then so you can take the age, measure the mass, measure the mass again sometime after it, figure out what that half-life is, and then like figure out basically when this came from. Sort when it of. It's not. Yeah, it's not. Probably not that exact. It's more like uh, because the half life is two point six million years, it lets us know that wherever it came from happened within the last you know ten or twenty million years, as opposed gotcha. to a trillion years or whatever. Okay. Yeah, we can't can't get around two and a half million years half life. Right. Uh, and I'm so, sure you'll you'll get into that more in the the methods. Yeah. Okay. And so I, I feel bad now. We're uh, 15 minutes in and I haven't even said who wrote this paper or anything about it. So the first author is Dominic Cole, who comes from the Technical University of Munich. And then there's a bunch of other authors who are all from kind of various like German and Austrian institutions. And it's published in the journal Physical Review Letters, Volume 123, which came out on August 12th, 2019. Okay, cool. So now diving into the paper. Interstellar Iron 60 in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's literally four words in this title, so I'm going to try to glean what's important from this. And I'm getting the interstellar part, you know, talked about supernovas, okay. got iron 60, Okay. Antarctica. Mm-hmm. That's the last piece of the puzzle here. So, and I understand the word in. Yes, that's an easy one. That's an easy one. So yeah, I mean, I think what you're getting at here is like, why, I mean, why would you go to Antarctica to find this if it's hitting the earth like all the time everywhere? When you can just go out your front door. Yeah. Like hold out a cup. Collect a little glass of iron 60, you know. Yep. Throw it down in the mass spectrometer. Get your physical review letters paper yeah. in. Get your papers. Uh, no, so they did this in Antarctica because it basically it's like a pristine source for this sample. Like this space dust and like stuff from micrometeorites, like there, this stuff could also be on like little pieces of actual like rock that are falling to Earth. And Basically, in Antarctica, there's no, there's very little collection of like other sources of dust. So you can imagine, like, oh, if you went to the okay. desert and you took a sample, it would not be very representative because that's getting blown around and like it's 
there's lots of other stuff falling on it or like in the mountains or something like rocks are moving all over the place going to an iron mine in the desert is like not the place you want to try to find and analyze samples of iron from a star right because like it'll just be drown out your signal or whatever you get from measuring this iron be drowned out yeah so so that's one side of it and then the other side is that because this is found in snow and they're taking it from like the surface Mm -hmm. we know that that snow has only fallen within the last like 10 or 20 years oh that's cool so they say like we know that this snow is at the oldest 20 years old okay so anything that's in it has to have impacted the earth like essentially now like in on in today's time that's really cool that's a cool technique it makes me think back to the neanderthals episode we did and they were like looking at the neanderthal art and you're like oh you get calcium over this paint or you know like the deposits in the cave and you're like we know how old this is it can only be this old so the paint has to be older than that yeah exactly it's it's cool to see the you know the connections between the different methods yeah and like just careful selection of like where you're going to do something like bakes into it a lot of really great assumptions and so like you can imagine if if they were taking like a rock core and looking for iron iron 60 in it that iron 60 could have hit the earth a million years ago in which case it doesn't really give us relevant information about where does the solar system actually reside because that's kind of their motivation in this paper is like we know that there's been these supernovas in this local interstellar medium like area um, or local interstellar cloud i think is kind of like where we live right now Mm -hmm. but we don't know exactly where the solar system fits in there and exactly like how old these supernovas are so they want to kind of like help constrain that a little bit that's so cool we know we're in this it's neat it's really neat to come up against these like big unknowns in science and you're like we know we're in the milky way and we know roughly the size of our solar system but like no one knows for sure where it is in this like you know huge body of the solar system yeah because it's really hard to just make observations like when you're in it like it's easy to look at a picture of another galaxy and see it as a whole but yeah i think it took a long time for them to even understand what our own galaxy looked like even though they knew what other galaxies looked like because i mean you're looking at it from the inside all you yeah. see is like just a big band of stars in the sky it's not even that long ago that we like we discovered that there were other galaxies right right yeah Anyways, so yeah sorry this stuff is cool it's like really cool motivation yeah it's easy we could talk about that all day yeah yeah okay it's raining it back in sorry i get really excited about this stuff and it's just it's cool there's so much unknown stuff in the universe but coming to what is known in this paper and how they analyzed it so they're they're pulling off the snow and they're looking for these radio radioactive isotopes of iron that have recently impacted the snow but presumably came, you know, it took them millions of years to get here, probably. Yeah, or more accurately would be it took us millions of years to get there. Because oh, we, like we, we are like it. whipping through these clouds. Oh, So okay. that's why they're like, well, if... Like one thing they say at the end of this paper is... Or actually in a news article, like this is a quote. They're saying like, in the future, we could hopefully maybe try and find older sources of this. Or or samples that would contain older sources, like, like a rock core or whatever. And then they can see if there's way less iron 60 then, then we know that at some point between then and now, we ran into a cloud of this stuff. Okay. Does that make sense? It's like the iron 60 is part of this, is in this cloud, and the solar system is zipping through the galaxy at, you know, like hundreds of kilometers per second. So if we suddenly hit a region of more stuff, like we're getting bombarded more. Oh, if we start to detect more iron 60, then we're in like a denser part of the cloud. Right. right. Less means 
less dense. Exactly. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. So I'm like recovering from my mind just being blown. I was thinking of like, you know, the earth is spinning in a certain axis and going around the sun in a certain plane. But then like, what if that entire plane is moving in a different direction? It is. Downwards or like upward. I mean, if it's hitting. No. So that's why it's interesting because it's like it's impacting Antarctica. But like, you know, Antarctica is like sort of not in the plane of rotation around the sun. Oh, I see. Yeah. But but it's possible that that entire our entire solar system is moving in an orthogonal direction. Yeah, exactly. Or like a yeah, a direction that is perpendicular to right that right axis. Okay. So how like they're collecting the snow, but then what do you do? What did they do? These researchers. So it's this and this is actually what makes this paper really interesting. I feel like reading the news articles and stuff, you kind of get this sense of like, oh, that's a cool discovery they made. But when you dive into the paper and you see the methods, you're like, wow, that's that sounds really hard. They like it's not easy to I mean, the amounts of these particles is so small. It's tiny. I mean, they had to collect a 500 kilogram sample of snow to get like a tiny signature. So two thousand, yeah, like over a thousand pounds of snow. Yeah. So what they are trying to do with this sample is like, and I think this is pretty common in like a lot of different scientific fields is they're looking at like ratios of these different isotopes or like okay. ratios of the isotope versus the stable configuration of the atom. Like it's hard to just straight up detect like a single atom of iron 60, you know? So is that because the iron 60 would just be detected as iron? As I don't, normal I don't know why they have to do it this way. Okay. And I don't really know exactly how these techniques work, but the reason why that's relevant is because they, in this paper, they, they use the ratio of iron 60 to manganese 53, which is another radioisotope. Hmm. I guess like in addition to this interstellar dust, there's also interplanetary dust. So interplanetary dust comes from the solar system it's like stuff that gets released from comets or asteroids or like maybe even a planet or something and then i guess there's this effect where all that dust very slowly moves in towards the sun because of drag and then the sun's radiation hits that dust and produces these same isotopes so you can get iron 60 as a result of like processes in the solar system which okay. would be indistinguishable from iron 60 that came from a supernova. You're just seeing iron 60. You have no idea what the origin is. Exactly. And so what is important about that, though, is that that process of like producing iron 60, the interplanetary dust, is that it's very well understood. And okay. so we, we have a very good idea of exactly how much we should expect to see from that process. Okay. So anything in excess of that, you can reasonably assume came from a supernova. Interesting. Okay. So what technique do they actually use? Like, you know, you give me a ton of snow, like literally like a thousand, yeah, one to two thousand pounds of snow. And I'm going to be like, I'll hold the magnet up to it all day and try to pull out iron. (laughs) But like, I have a feeling that's not going to detect whether there's been the remnants of a supernova. Yeah, yeah. So they actually have to like melt the snow down. Okay. So that's the first step. They melt the snow down and then they run that water through a series of filters they're like it's like a filter made of cellulose they said and the first filter has a pore size of i think it was 12 micrometers it's like coffee making coffee yeah exactly interstellar coffee and oh do you think you want to use this interstellar water oh, to make man, coffee that would be cr- i mean it's not really interstellar water it's just antarctic water but it's got interstellar i mean we're made of space dust too yeah your like- coffee already has iron 60 in it 
Come on, man. From you're a ruining, supernova. You're ruining the fun. No, it makes it way cooler. Like, this stuff is everywhere. So, mm-hmm. I guess we'll get to it when we see how much there is in it. You'll see exactly how much of this is falling all over the Earth. Okay. So, they run it through these filters. The second filter had, like, a two-micrometer microm- pore size. And then, so now, in those filters is trapped a bunch of particles. Like, those are meant to be, like, dust particles from, like, micrometeorites and whatever else. Mm-hmm. And then they also have the water, which is now absent of those particles. So they have to process those separately. So they take the filters that have all that dust baked into them and they just like burn them down to ash. And then they, I guess they do some chemical processing on that ash. I think they actually add a bunch of um, stable iron and stable manganese to it because like they need to like seed it in order to better, because then they have a very known quantity of iron in it. Oh, so that when okay. they find those ratios, it's like easier to calculate. And then, okay, the ratio is going to be off from whatever they put in. Yes, exactly. Interesting. Um, so then they, and then they do the same thing with the water. They evaporate the water and collect it like somehow and then, and then they process it and they add stuff to it. Cool. Um, okay. Is there a name for this process or? I don't know if there's a name for the process that they did, like the chemical processing, but then the analysis part is that they did accelerator mass spectrometry which i think you know we've talked about mass spectrometry on this podcast before it's basically like you can put a sample in it's like the you know it's like the plankton technology that we talked about i think a couple episodes ago how you know you can drop the thing in and it'll tell you seaweed 50 percent sea 50 percent weed you know like, <laughs> uh, but so basically yeah. it tells you like the constituents of whatever sample is in it but i guess this technique the accelerator mass spectrometry is like extremely sensitive for like very very small concentrations of this um iron 60 and manganese 53 okay and the the authors say that there's only two facilities in the entire world that are able to process like these samples and one of them happens to be at the technical university of munich ah what's where's the other one the other one i think was in australia some school in australia okay yeah that's cool spectroscopy is so cool yeah it's like what a cool technique it is very cool, yeah. Okay, so they took this interstellar water, which really isn't interstellar because it's from Earth, but it has interstellar constituents. Mm-hmm. They filter it, different filters. They burn it up, get the ash, boil off the water, get whatever's remaining, run it through the accelerator mass spectrometry machine or machines, presumably. And what do they find? What they find is, I guess, I guess like the output of this machine is like it gives them like instances of where it was found or something like that. But those instances then correspond to like a certain abundance. So anyway, you boil it all down, they do the math, and they found that between the two samples, they found about 73,000 atoms of iron 60. That's not very much. That is like a tiny, tiny amount. Yeah. It's like disturbing how tiny that is. Yeah. I mean, you think of like you have half a ton of snow that took up, uh, I think they said it was 6.25 like meters squared of surface area. So that's like, you know, a small room or something. Yeah. I mean, that's bigger than my bedroom. And you find only 73,000 individual atoms. Like that's how sensitive this machine is that it could pick out that small of an amount. I mean, that's got to be like fewer atoms than you could probably fit on the like head of a or like the needle of a pin, this oh, tiny point. Dude, I think, I mean, you're not even on the right scale there. Like 
73,000 atoms is like not even it's small. Like I don't think that's even visible with like a microscope. Yeah, it's small. It's very small. So they then calculate that like what it what would be the actual rate of like iron 60 hitting the earth if, you know, with given that amount in the area that they found. And it was 1.2 atoms per centimeter squared per year. So like your think of like on your thumbnail if you held out your thumbnail up to the sky in one year you would only get one iron 60 atom that hit it that's crazy that's how sensitive their measurement was but probably with a ton of energy right uh yeah probably but well i mean it's interesting the like you get galactic cosmic rays hitting the earth and so you get these like very small nuclei i mean this is just from what i've heard but it's amazing they hit with like it's a small nucleus but it hits with a lot of energy yeah i mean those are what gives people cancer in space yeah like a galactic cosmic ray and stuff yeah i don't I'm think sure that's probably is quite like that destroys but. a piece of dna yeah interesting anyways yeah uh, but so that gives you a sense of like okay this is hard to detect and makes you sort of appreciate what they've found here but they're not it's not like they're the first group to detect iron 60 from supernova but Still, though, I mean... But just praying credence to everyone who has done this. It's crazy. It's so cool. I mean, it's, like, actually hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. Okay. So, 73,000 atoms. What does that mean? So, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like we just talked all this amount about how tiny that is and how few that is. But um, but that's actually way more than what you would expect to find if we didn't have interstellar Iron 60. Really? Yeah, so they kind of are able to like predict what they would be able to expect like coming just from interplanetary dust. So they have, you know, there's previous studies that have shown like exactly what the ratio of iron 60 to manganese 53 should be in like meteorites. Mm -hmm. So like stuff that is just, you know, solar system based. And then using this relationship, they basically found that like what they found in the snow is two orders of magnitude higher than it should be if we just had interplanetary dust. Whoa. Yeah. So, I mean, like, this is 100... We're getting 100 times more Iron 60 than if we were not floating through a former supernova. So, like, that tells them, all right, we're floating through a supernova, and this is how much of it there is. Yeah. So, like, that confirms what they were hoping to find, basically. That's awesome. How... So, do you have any sense for, like, how... They really know what to expect from like um, just the interstellar dust interacting with the sun. The amount of iron 60 that we get from that. Like, couldn't that be changing, you know, year to year? Uh, I think not, probably not very much because what's going on in the solar system is very constant. You know, like they know exactly how much energy and radiation the sun is giving off. They know exactly how many, not exactly, but they know like by mass how many asteroids there are out there and where they are. So like you can build models that predict like, well, so here's how much dust there would be. They can put put bounds on it at least. Yeah. And like, you know, we've sent satellites that have like probed for dust for like interplanetary dust. So we actually like have made in-situ measurements of interplanetary dust. So we understand it pretty well. I mean, that's my unqualified answer, but what I think is the case. And I guess even though the iron 60 is old, really... It's only, you know, it only impacted Earth within this like less than 20 year time frame. Right. Which is we've been measuring this stuff more or less for at least 20 years. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's cool. 
so I mean, it's all really happening in this time frame where we've had knowledge of like how much is happening. Yes. And have good estimates. Yes, okay. Exactly. Cool. That's really neat. Yeah. So Richard Feynman would want me to ask, <laughs> you know, is there anything else that could be accounting for this iron 60? Uh, I mean, yes, there are other things and they actually spend like probably half this paper just talking about those other possible sources. Mm-hmm. and ruling them out could one of the sources be little gremlins that live in antarctica and convert iron to iron 60 you know they didn't discuss that one i think you should write a letter to the editor <laughs> and uh disclaim this whole piece of science i mean the fact that they didn't address that is alarming it is like what are scientists even doing anymore oh anyways so gremlins aside um yeah you see, what like what other possibilities did they consider and cancel out? So one of them is like it's possible that you know I mentioned that iron sixty can come from these meteorites like that are coming from interplanetary dust. It's possible that this area in Antarctica has just had like tons and tons of meteorites impacting it, uh, and so then there's like higher abundance of iron sixty. What they did though is they kind of looked at based on the concentrations that exist in meteorites and based on kind of the statistical probability of them impacting Mm -hmm. and then you know they looked at this distribution and they found that the concentration that they found in the snow where it falls on that distribution it would be a 0.1 percent chance that it could have come from meteorites so it's not impossible but it's like so much less likely yeah probably i mean like you could you could disprove that 99.9 percent yeah right i mean you could disprove that just by taking another sample from like you know the north pole or something doing the same process and if you same find the same concentration then you're like okay definitely not coming from those meteorites yeah huh okay so that's pretty convincing and then here's one they actually spent like a lot of time covering this one a full page out of, of the paper that was only four and a half pages wow talking about nuclear fallout oh i mean that's a good i mean <laughs> i think that's a good possibility not knowing anything about it you know we're finding plastics everywhere uh we did the episode where they found nuclear radiation at the bottom of the uh the mariana trench yeah yeah so yeah and it's also because they're taking like a sample that has existed only in the last 20 years it's like a very real possibility yeah there haven't been as many tests in the last 20 years no 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 but the fallout would still be you know settling oh yeah as opposed to taking a sample that is from 100 years ago nuclear fallout's not an option yes. in that case so they did this whole analysis and like they tons and tons of assumptions by looking at concentrations of other particles that are kind of like a good proxy for what would be produced by nuclear bombs you know yada yada yada. it was very long and like i read it and i was like okay this is really interesting but i would have to know so much more to really digest this properly anyway the summary mm-hmm. of it all is they said they basically said that like the production of iron 60 from nuke tests would be completely negligible compared okay. to what they found in this sample. That's reasonable. Yeah. But then there's also like nuclear reactors that exist and there's tons of nuclear reactors. So they're like, maybe that's, maybe that could be another source. That um, makes me wonder now, you know, there was that recent nuclear accident in Russia. Did you hear about that? Chernobyl? <laughs> no, no. I mean, like even more recent weeks ago. Really? Yeah, they were doing a test. They believe it was for a nuclear-powered missile. Huh. Five Russian scientists died. I mean, there was like a... Are you serious? A blast. And 
like Central, Eastern, and even Western Europe detected, I believe, throughout Europe, they detected um, elevated levels of radiation that would suggest usually a, I mean, like a civilian reactor, not like a nuclear bomb blast. Right. So it was a short pulse. Oh, man. And there's like the Russian city, I forget what it's called. It's sort of like the equivalent of Los Alamos in Russia. It's a closed off city. So people don't just like go there unless you have a reason. Right. It's where all their nuclear research is prim- primarily from what I understand. I'm forgetting what isotope it was that they measure now, but it's interesting, you know? Oh. Uh, I wonder I wonder if civilian reactors would give off something if there were an accident that's has a high quantity of iron 60. So, uh, so I'm glad that you asked that because I was sort of thinking the same thing. And what they say is that nuclear reactors basically contain all iron 60 that is produced. Like they're built so that they contain it. And then they also said that even... Even big fallout events like Fukushima produced no detectable change in iron 60 found in the atmosphere. So like even when you have like a... The core is exposed. Yeah, like a malfunction or an explosion or whatever. um, It still doesn't really... Like iron 60 is not the thing that's getting flung out. Okay. So I mean that seems to point that we don't have a good human or like earthly explanation for this presence of iron 60 in Antarctica. Right. They pretty much ruled out any source that came from the earth. And then, but then, and then the last thing they said is, uh, you know, could it be primordial iron 60 primordial meaning before the formation of the earth? Mm-hmm. So it'd be, you know, it's like already floating around the universe, but given that iron 60s half-life is 2.6 million years, all of that primordial stuff would be gone by now. So I have a dumb question. Okay. Um, the earth formed and we have an atmosphere and like, we pretty much know it's just nitrogen and oxygen and like trace amounts of like these other gases Mm -hmm. but like how do we know there's not just a bunch of like iron 60 you know if it's only an atom it's not gonna just like fall down to earth how do we know it's not just getting collected up in clouds like do you think it's just from our knowledge of like collecting and measuring the atmosphere and like never finding iron 60 hanging around so it has to come from outside the atmosphere uh well a it is in the atmosphere but we'd be, okay. I mean, I don't know how abundant, but like they said, it could be coming from the, they said like one of the potential sources, terrestrial sources is the atmosphere. Oh, but, um, okay. I imagine that that's the kind of thing that is easy to mod, like easy to just know from the physics that these particles can easily penetrate the atmosphere before hitting the ground, like hitting the snow in Antarctica. Okay. I mean, so like, I guess from my own knowledge in plasma physics, when we talk about like interactions between particles there's you usually describe it in terms of like a cross section Mm -hmm. meaning like effectively if these were two billiard balls what is the like effective size of these billiard balls in relation to each other okay so basically like a larger cross section just means a much higher probability that it will interact yeah or that that uh, these two particles will undergo that reaction so i imagine you can easily say well the cross section of an iron 60 particle moving at the velocity from a supernova explosion through the atmosphere means extremely low likelihood of it colliding before hitting the ground something like that okay cool uh, that's just me spitballing but just, it, they don't even bring it up in this paper that it's like just accepted it's just it's, it's accepted not, like, that it's not hanging out in the troposphere and like every time it snows like a little bit just gets collected up and yeah, falls down exactly okay. exactly cool well that's interesting were there any other parts of the paper that you thought were worth bringing up i like that you brought in the part about like trying to come up with alternate explanations that might account for it because i think that's like it's a good part of every scientific experiment 
it's important, especially when you're looking at such low, such low quantities of this thing. Like it would not be hard for this to be a false signature. Yeah. Um, so they rule that stuff out. Uh, that's, I mean, that's basically the whole paper. Then, then, then they just go into like a conclusion and they say, we conclude that we have found for the first time recent iron 60 with interstellar origin in it in Antarctica. So this okay. is like a, I guess a first, um, they do present a table of other studies that have measured like the influx of iron 60 and the other sources are from like, it says ferromanganese crusts or sediments. Um, one study actually looked at lunar regolith. So like moon soil. And the flux of iron 60 is way higher on the moon, probably for exactly what you're just saying that like on the earth, there's many other places for it to, to stop and go. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. So like, you know, we said in oh, this study, they found 1.2 atoms per centimeter squared per year, but in the lunar soil, they found 20 to a hundred atoms per centimeter squared per year. Man, this is like, that's such a cool example of like, oh, you know, like, why do we need to go to the moon? Like what science could you do on the moon anyways? And it's like, this is one example of the things you could study in the lunar soil. Like imagine how oh, yeah. probably thousands of scientists who would love to get their hands on that stuff. Yeah. It tells us so much about literally, I mean, where we are in our galaxy right now. Yeah. But so basically they, they present this table to say our measurement is in line with a lot of these other measurements. Like some of these other okay. ones, it's like 0.4 or 0.5 or 1 to 3, you know. So they're right on they're right on the mark. Um, it's just that their source being Antarctic snow is very unique compared to the other sources. Cool. Yeah. So that's, that's the paper. I love it. That was great. No episode would be complete without revisiting the headlines. You said they were pretty accurate, but like looking back on them, is there anything that you wish they had added or that the articles had added? Honestly, I mean, it's nothing that I wish they added. Uh, they did. The coverage was really good. The, New York Times article was probably my favorite just because it kind of wove it into like more of a story while still maintaining the science being really good. The New York Times science articles are really good. They are really good. Yeah. I like the first line in it is uh, I just like the idiom that they used here, I guess. Tens of thousands of extraterrestrial dust, mostly from asteroids and comets, settles all over the planet every year. We are the shoulder to a universe of dandruff. Love it. I kind of like that. Man, you know, the author who came up with that was like for a week going around to his or her friends and being like, hey, want to hear this line I came up with for my new article? They're like, what? They're like, you know, shoulder for the dandruff of the universe. And then they're all like, you know, we're also New York Times writers. We come up with very cool things every day, too. (laughs) Yeah. And just totally put them down. (laughs) Put them down. Yeah. (laughs) No, I actually, I think that's really funny. No, it's cool. And it's also, it's very illustrative. I kind of wish I had said that at the beginning because it's very illustrative of, of the process that we're talking about here, which is the earth ramming into clouds of stuff as opposed to clouds of stuff, you know, washing over us. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of both. They're both moving. It's all relative, right? Said Einstein. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Do you think Einstein was the first to use that comeback? It's all relative. Yeah. Maybe. That'd be pretty cool. Be like, and I know because I came up with the theory of general relativity. No, but also like, I mean, when you talk about like relative frames, like I think Galileo was doing that stuff, you know? Yeah. But it would still have a lot of impact to find science. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I get it. I'm done. Yeah. That's like, do you I think, hope, well, I mean, Galileo. Yeah. That's like asking, do you think like a Greek guy was the first person to use, it's all Greek to me? 
<laughs> like, <laughs> and they're like, yeah, to me too. Yeah, it's like, no, very literally, it's all Greek to me. And someone's like, hmm, I'm going to coin that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I mean, can you imagine if we had to pay taxes on that forever? Yeah, copyright fee. Copyright fee. My, uh, that was my probability teacher's like favorite line. It was so funny in class. He would be like, you're lucky that we'd have to do a bunch of like Fourier transforms and stuff mm-hmm. all the time. And he's like, you're lucky Fourier didn't copyright this. Otherwise, you'd all be poor. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Anyways, great article. Thank you for thank bringing you. that in, Charlie. And thank you, Ben, for the excellent recommendation. Yeah, Ben Gilchrist, listener down in Australia. Again, we always love hearing where people are listening from. That was very exciting. Like he sent the article, very like short email, just basically the link. And then uh, and then you responded, James. And then he responded back and he was like, oh, I forgot to tell you because, you know, you guys love hearing this. I'm from Australia. And we were like, yes. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to post a map sometime of all of our listener recommendations. We should do that. Yeah. But uh, in the meantime, reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram at PaperboysPod. Uh, let us know your thoughts on this episode, where you're listening from. More importantly, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash PaperboysPod. Here comes our our desperate plea for money uh but not really it's just it's a really good way to support the show and get some bonus episodes we've covered a bunch of cool topics so far already yeah and we're really looking forward to adding new content and new ways of reaching out um charlie and i have been talking and planning to add video content for the podcast uh which we're excited to be bringing out in the next couple of weeks and we've set kind of like a target on our patreon you can go to the website to check it out we're still short of that target, but we kind of feel like that is a number where where it makes sense for us to start um, branching out into these different things. Like, yeah. you need to see James's beautiful face when I describe to him a scientific <laughs> concept. <laughs> I feel like you are all being deprived. So, you know, if you know, as the Patreon grows, we will hopefully be branching out into more cool stuff like that. And yeah, truthfully, all of the proceeds from Patreon are to go right back into the podcast. Um, exactly. They cover hosting fees and like investing in new equipment so that we can do add new avenues if there are things that interest you. So let us know if there are things you'd like to see. Let us know that too. We'd be excited to implement them and hear your ideas. Yeah. Uh, tune in next week for another exciting edition of Paper Boys. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>